This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, For joining us, you, you are, are listening to Evidence for Faith, the voice, voice of Rachel Christie. This is the show where we help you learn how to live a happy life, where we talk about the ideas and the philosophy that leads to the fulfilled and abundant life that Jesus talked about. I'm Keith Kendricks, and hopefully Kirk Hastings is there. Hello, hello. There you are. There you are. My mic's a little slow here. Okay. I have a retarded mic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you'd like to talk with us, you can call us at... uh, Well, actually, uh, we'll have to talk to John about that because my Skype line wasn't working, and so I called in on the guest line, and I'm not sure if anybody else can call then. You sound a little different, like you're on a different line here. Yeah, yeah. So, um... Yeah, the wonders of technology. I'm not sure if anybody can call in today. Oh, well. <laughs> nope, John is saying no. All right. Well, they'll just have to email us or come to our Facebook page then. There you go. Yes. Like some other people have been, the Facebook page is getting uh, a lot of traffic and some interesting atheist comments. There we had a, a good discussion going with a couple of atheists that were bringing out the, I don't know, the same old uh, arguments. Um, for some reason, they, they don't want to admit that either they are agnostics or they want all the agnostics to count as atheists. So, um, so they were trying that old argument that uh, not believing anything about God is the same, is, is actually atheism, uh, instead of the uh, normal definition of atheism, was, which is that you believe there is no God. Yeah, one guy was a little interesting in the way he phrased it. He was talking about, if I remember correctly, um, like a lesser atheist and a, a greater atheist or something. Right. <laughs> and, right. and the greater atheist believes that there's no God more than the guy that's a lesser atheist. <laughs> and yeah, like, no, the, uh, the, yeah, the yeah <laughs> the lesser atheist is what we all used to call agnosticism. But, right, but the, right. So since there's only a few percent of the population that are atheists and they want to try to, uh, you know, build up the numbers and, you know, maybe there's uh, 10% of people who are agnostic, they want all those numbers to count as atheists. So if they call them atheists, soft atheists is what they call them. So <laughs> Yeah, right. Soft and hard atheists. That's, that's yeah. really interesting. I never heard that before. Yep, yep. That's the new, uh, the new <laughs> propaganda. So. <laughs> And then apparently this is supposed to relieve you of the uh, the need to, the burden of proof. So you don't need to prove your point if you don't have a position. So, of course, right. the, the truth is that they do have a position. They just know that there's no evidence for it, and they're looking for a way not to have to provide any. So they they say that they don't take a position when they actually do. Well, one guy was trying to say that an atheist doesn't have faith in anything. And right. I said that, well, I don't think that's exactly true. You have faith that there is no God. Exactly. So that's a faith in itself. Sure it is. So 
uh, so we caught them on on that a little bit, a little bit of uh, intellectual dishonesty there. But um, and then there was one odd comment. I finally just actually rereading it today. I realized what the person was saying. He was saying that the oldest copy of the Old Testament is sixteen hundred years old, and uh, you know that just isn't right. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, I, what about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, I didn't understand that either. Yeah, well, it finally occurred to me that he meant to say the New Testament. Oh, okay. So the oldest copy of the New Testament, so probably because he had said oldest copy is that it kind of threw him, and so he he wrote Old Testament instead, meaning okay. actually a New Testament. Of course, what he means is that the documents of the New Testament, we don't have a full collection of all the documents of the New Testament until about 1600 years ago. But, of course, we do have much earlier copies of each of the individual documents. So, right, and so I'm not sure what his point was about that. It was, But he was claiming that Christians were lying uh, by saying that the documents were actually earlier than that. And, of course, that's simply not true. I mean, nobody claims that the entire collection or, or an individual copy of the entire collection of the New Testament uh, existed prior to that. We're just saying that the individual documents, like there, we have a fragment of a, a book of Mark that we think is from the first century. Um, so nobody's saying that the in, we have a copy of the entire New Testament from the first century. So, so but other than um, objections like that, it was um, uh, pretty much standard the standard atheist commentary. Yeah, I was re- I was really wondering. We've had the Facebook page up for quite a while now, and uh, we really weren't getting much in the way of uh, responses from atheists and agnostics and those kind of people. And I was wondering, you know, where are these guys? And then suddenly, within the past week, a few of them started to show up. Yep. So that may open the floodgates. I don't know. <laughs> well, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. But yeah. So you can check us out on Facebook at Evidence for Faith. You can also check us out online at Evidence. Faith.com. That's evidence the number four, faith.com. And also you can find us on iTunes. Uh, you can listen to podcasts there, and you can read all the reviews by the atheists um, who were commanded by one of their blog leaders to go and attack us. So they, a bunch of them attacked us on the iTunes. Yes, atheist uh, zombies. Yeah, there you go. The atheist zombies. They all, they all do what their leader tells them to do. Are you going to all... You can also check out the uh, RatioChristi.org website for more information about Ratio Christi. Well, oh, we didn't do a quote. We have to do the quote of the week. So we're still on C.S. Lewis. This is an interesting quote. This is, uh, he says, You cannot make men good by law, and without good men, you cannot have a good society. And that's from C.S. Lewis, and that is very true. You do need good good men. You need, uh, if you want to have a good society, and so if you want to learn how to be a good person and how Christianity can help you become a good person, then you need to be listening to Evidence for Faith, because we'll show you that Christianity is true and that it's beneficial for the individual and for society, and therefore for the state. And we definitely encourage you to obey the law here. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, if you can govern yourself, then you don't need to be governed by other people. That's right. Um, we mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls as being the oldest uh, copies of the Old Testament, and I had the privilege of going to see the Dead Sea Scrolls in Philadelphia yesterday. Uh, that was really exciting. Uh, I've 
saw a previous display of them in Minneapolis when I was visiting up there, uh, but that was a much smaller display, and the pieces of the Dead Sea Scroll that they had out were very small pieces. I guess, you know, that doesn't matter how big the pieces are, although kind of seeing some of the bigger ones is kind of kind of neat. But this also had a lot of additional artifacts and things from the uh, ancient times, from Israeli life and, and business and things, and it was so it was really exciting to see the biblical times all illustrated with these actual um, items that have been dug up in the past, and there were none of none of the items that they said uh, they said there were um, copies. There were no fakes, no uh, reproductions. They were all original items, including some of the things that have made the news. Uh, one of the ossuaries there that has the name of Jesus on it, one of them that has the name of Mary on it, uh, things like that. Some of the things that have been in the news, those were there. So that was really uh, exciting to see those up close and, and personal. So if you were uh, looking at uh, small pieces of some scrolls and larger pieces of other scrolls, does that mean that you were looking at soft scrolls and hard scrolls? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Well, you know, I tell you, uh, you know, of course, many of the scrolls, and, and I hope people know that the Dead Sea Scrolls were scrolls that were discovered in 1947, right about the time that uh, Israel was becoming a nation for the first time. And these were the oldest copies of the Old Testament uh, in existence. Uh, they were about a thousand years older than any manuscript evidence that we had before. So it was really. Uh, a significant find. In fact, some commentators said that it was probably the greatest find, archaeological find of the 20th century. Yeah. And uh, so fascinating things. Uh, an entire book of Isaiah, fragments from many, many other, and portions of scrolls from many, many other Old Testament books. So very exciting. And so one of the ones I got to see was very really in great condition i mean it was very straight it wasn't distorted the the writing was fairly clear and it was interesting to me i was amazed at how small the lines of print were so the ink was laid down very thin so the letters were composed of strokes from a brush or a pen that were very thin like the thickness of a hair and all very finely detailed, very straight lines of writing, um, just very beautiful, actually. is a very, very attractive piece. So it was just neat to see uh, some of the uh, almost artwork that went into producing some of the scrolls. Wow. Um, I've got some notes on a couple things. There was a, a, uh, a stamp. They had a, a seal. So this was a, what was used to make impressions into clay to seal a document. Uh, and this said, belonging to Netanyahu, son of Yahush. And this is a name that's mentioned in First Chronicles 24 and Second Chronicles 17. So um, this is from the 7th century. So this is real interesting. Huh, how about um, they, they had a jar handle from Tel El Hama with an inscription that has the name Ahab on it. King Ahab, and it dates to the 10th century, for, to the time of King Ahab. Is that uh, from that old song, Ahab the Arab? No, different. Different. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. There was um, an ivory plaque 
from Hazor, there was a uh, Stella. The um, Now, this one, what they did, instead of some of the items that they couldn't bring, I guess because they were too valuable or something, or maybe they were um, not in possession of the Israeli Antiquities Association, they had images instead, and they talked about, so they had a photograph of some of the important discoveries, and this one was the Tel Dan Steel, and that is the earliest, they think, the earliest mention outside the Bible of the House of David, and that is from the ninth century, and it mentions the House of David, including uh, portions of the names of King Jehoram of Israel and King Amaziah of Judah. Uh, so that, uh, you know, evidence that uh, there really was a historic ancient Israel, because some of the critics, of course, as uh, maybe many of our listeners may be aware, uh, the critics claimed that Israel wasn't even a large nation uh, back then. Hmm. Then they showed, let's see, this one also was an image. It was the uh, Marnepta Victory Stel, or Stella, uh, excavated by Sir Flinders Petrie in 1896 at Thebes in Egypt, and it talks about the destruction of uh, the nation of Israel. So they think that is the earliest mention of the land of Israel, and that's from the 13th century. And these so that's are, very, very early. These dates are B.C., I take it? B.C., yeah. Yeah, wow. Cool. And then it was what they, one thing they had that was really interesting, because <clears throat> last week we had just finished up talking about the accuracy of the Bible, and we talked about how the slave settlements that were in Egypt had the typical Israeli architecture of the Israeli home. There and that those so those slave settlement quarters match the houses that the Israelis later built in Israel, and they actually had a mock-up of one of those homes. It's a four-room house, and the description says that uh, most of the houses that were built during the Iron Age were the typical is Israelite four-room house, and it says this rectangular house would have an entrance to a long, open-aired courtyard with a two roofed-over long rooms on either side, as well as a roofed-over broad room in the back. So I guess the, uh, so it's kind of rectangular. There's an open court. That's that's one of the rooms, and then the, the there are three other rooms with roofs over them on the uh, sides and the back of the house. So uh, that's, uh, again, confirmation of the presence of Israelites uh, in Egypt. Wow, cool. So, again, something that... Uh, the critics uh, say never happen. So I guess we'll pick up there for today. If you're if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks, and I'm Kirk Hastings, and we are talking about the accuracy of the Bible. Is the Bible accurately describing the events and places that it describes? Past weeks we looked at how the Bible has been transmitted reliably. So now we're looking at, now that we know that the Bible was transmitted reliably, do we know that what it says is accurate? So we do have evidence then for Asiatic slaves or Semitic slaves, Israelite slaves in Egypt um, during the period that the Bible uh, describes as the sojourn, right, the um, Israel being in Egypt. Some of the slaves that we have records of, even have biblical names in them. Um, we talked about uh, the fact that 
there's this term habiru that means stateless, which we believe that the word Hebrew may have derived from. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it is, isn't it? So it makes sense because if you read the Old Testament, you don't see where the term Hebrew comes from. It doesn't, there's nothing in the Old Testament that I know of, at least, that gives any indication. You, we do know where Israel comes from, the Israelites. Uh, it comes from the patriarch Israel. But we don't see anything that says anything about the name Hebrew. Yeah, I remember being interested in that question a couple of years ago and trying to find where it was first mentioned or where it came from, and I don't think there is anything that that describes where that particular term comes from. Right. So this this uh, theory that archaeologists have that it's from that uh, term, the word for stateless, not having a nation. Right. Um, and that makes sense if these were seen as outsiders living in their own land and... Um, you know, not having a state of their own, a country of their own to call their home, that would make perfect sense, that they might be called Hebrews. Yeah, it would. Something else that we know about the this slave settlement, it was in the land of Goshen, it was in this uh, very rich land, very good farmland. Why you would want to put slaves there uh, seems crazy, but of course we know from the story um, that Joseph asked for the best land to put his family so the royal precinct at the time of the ex- exodus was actually right there next to this slave settlement. Um, and the, where Joseph asked for that land is from uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 47. So the interesting thing is that this explains, then you get an idea when we remember the story of Pharaoh's daughter discovering Moses floating in a basket uh, on the Nile, that explains how she could have been the first one to see uh, the baby Moses, because the royal palace was right there, right at this prime real estate place, just downriver from where the slaves were housed. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, because uh, somebody in my church just said something the other day I thought was pretty funny. She said that uh, <clears throat> uh, Moses was the first basket case in the Bible, and look how God used him. <laughs> That's good. I like that. <laughs> yeah, we're both basket cases here, so <laughs> so that's good. So if you're a basket case, there's still hope for you. That's right. <laughs> Look what happened to Moses. So <laughs> Had the, a movie made about him and everything. <laughs> oh, I tell you, yeah, famous guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the princess that found Moses, archaeologically, it looks like the best evidence indicates there are a couple of competing theories, but... In my mind, at least, and in a lot of archaeologists' minds, the best evidence is that this princess was an Egyptian princess by the name of Hatshepsut, and at this time she would have been about seven years old. So that also kind of explains this, what otherwise would seem a bit strange as to why an Egyptian princess would want to keep a baby that she discovered floating in a basket. Well, maybe because... She was seven years old, and uh, this was like a doll to her. Yeah, right. So, um, and it also explains why she might have needed help in figuring out what to do with the baby. Um, and this is where Moses' mother gets the opportunity to nurse Moses until he becomes old enough to wean. Yeah, it does, uh, so it does kind of make more sense than uh, in the Ten Commandments. 
the girl that discovers Moses in the basket is, is like a young woman. Yeah, right. She's like 25 or something. Yeah, it does kind of make more sense if it was a young child that found him. Yeah. So the interesting thing about this Princess Hepchepset is that at the time of the Exodus, every image of her was chiseled away. So the only images that we have are kind of relief negative images. They're where somebody had gone in with a chisel and actually struck her face off of the all the monuments. She was erased, huh? Yeah, she was erased. <laughs> so it's possible that the reason she was erased was because she was blamed as being responsible for the events that, that happened in the Exodus. She uh, started it all, huh? Yeah, by that's right, by adopting, by adopting Moses. There you go. Uh-huh. So, um, so that's certainly a possibility. Now, this places the date of Exodus at about 1446 B.C., and uh, this is supported by a lot of different evidence. One is that the three cities that are mentioned in the Bible as being attacked, uh, Jericho, Ai, and Hazor, Archaeologically, all three of those cities were burned at the end of the 15th century. So that does fit in this time frame, because remember, if you have the Exodus as 1446 B.C., then they were in the wilderness for 40 years, so that would mean entry into the Promised Land at about 1406. Now, then you can compare some of this archaeological evidence, this, these burned layers of these different cities to see if they match what the story of the Old Testament says, uh, the book of Exodus. And we know that Jericho's destruction took place just after the harvest. So the grain had been brought into the city. The walls uh, fell, just as described in Exodus. We know the siege was short, and we also know that the city was not plundered. Now, this, of course, would be very unusual. Right. historically, for a city not to be plundered. But it was described that that's the, what happened in the Bible, and, and that's archaeologically, that's what we find right at that destruction layer that happened in the 15th century. Yeah, why would you destroy a city and not take all the goodies out of it? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So then, by if, if all that matches up, that would mean, if you're wondering then, who was the pharaoh of the Exodus, it appears that it would be Amenhotep II. I've always wondered that. There you go. Now you go. Now I got to put a name with the face in the movie. <laughs> so uh, Amenhotep II took the throne in 1450 BC, and that was immediately after the death of his father, Tutmosis III. Now, also interesting is that. Tutmosis III would have been the father of Hethshepset, the pharaoh's daughter, remember? Right. So her father's name is Tutmosis, and she gets this baby that she wants to adopt, and she names it, it Moses. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So, um, so another little correlation then there. And we do know a little bit about this Amenhotep II from some of the engravings, the Egyptian writings about him that are on... Uh, his monuments. For one thing, he was very famous for his personal strength and his prowess in warfare, in, in kind of in contrast to his father. Descriptions of his father are not the same. Uh, the, these are very descriptive. I mean, they, they, 
if you read them, you really get the impression that this guy was really brutal. Um, he had a really arrogant attitude, brutal and cruel. And guess what? That happens to match the description of the pharaoh that refused to allow the slaves their liberty. Right. So it's interesting, we've got that description by the Egyptians of this pharaoh, and it sounds just like the, the pharaoh that's being described uh, in the Old Testament. Right. Then another uh, fact that comes from the archaeologists is that that royal residence that I was talking about and the slave settlement there in the uh, land of Goshen was suddenly abandoned uh, during his reign, during Amenhotep II's reign. So everything is suddenly abandoned, uh, unexplained. In fact, the write-up, I read an article by the uh, archaeologist who discovered all this, and basically everything is just as it was. Tools, implements, things of daily life were just left on the tables, left on the floor, just left in the houses. Now, this is really strange. I mean, can you imagine a tradesman abandoning the, the tools of his trade? Yeah. So, you know, why would you just walk away and your livelihood, your ability to make money, to earn a living, you just leave it all behind? Yeah, it sounds like they had a really good reason for getting out of there quick. Yep. Like Moses said, okay, we're all leaving. Let's go. Right. Let's get out of here before Pharaoh changes his mind. <laughs> right. So, and of course, he did change his mind. Right. Now, then there's another corollary that we know from ancient uh, history that matches, that makes things match this time frame and not another time frame, is that after the Exodus, we have Egyptian records that show that there were two military raids made into uh, Syria-Palestine area in 1444 and in 1442. So just a few years later, after the Exodus, Egypt is going into Syria and Palestine for a specific purpose. They're looking for slaves. Hmm. So they're out capturing slaves. To replace uh, the ones they lost. Exactly. And livestock, to replace the livestock that they lost. Huh. Um, also horses and chariots that they lost in the army. So it does seem like this is all an attempt to replenish the lost wealth and everything that went with it during the Exodus. So the records show that that first campaign, they recouped 2,255 slaves, 820 horses, and 730 chariots. Then in the second raid, a few years later, they gained 101 1,128 slaves and 1,092 chariots. Wow. Now, this, archaeologically, this is seven, uh, several orders of magnitude larger than any other Egyptian campaign before this, this or sounds, after. Sounds like almost as many slaves as got out, they went back and got more. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Huh. So, well, I think there were about a million. Do I remember that right? Was it a million that left? Yeah, I in think the I've Exodus? heard that. Yeah, so I'm not, not as sure. many, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm not sure about that. But they definitely, it's it's very odd that this is the biggest attempt to gain slaves, and it just happens to come a couple of years after the expected 
departure of all the slaves, if the Exodus story is true. Right. It fits right in with it. Exactly. They would want to go and replace what they lost because all of a sudden they didn't have all these people to build their monuments and stuff. That's right. Now, last week we went into whether the story about Jericho fit in. We, we also, of course, talked about it briefly uh, today. So we won't go into that again. But there's an interesting story from the Bible that happens uh, later on. Do you remember the story of Balaam and the ass? Uh-huh. Well, Balaam was a prophet that lived in the area, and he was asked, the Israelites were coming in and conquering, and he was asked to curse the Israelites. And uh, this is when the Bible says that his donkey talked to him. <laughs> right. So, of course, it sounds like a fantastic story, and, you know, it doesn't seem like there could be any truth to such a thing. Well, guess what? In 1967, there were 50 lines of text found in an ancient building in Jordan uh, from circa 800 B.C. So the building was from circa 800 B.C., and there were 50 lines of text. Now, this is Jordan, not Israel, uh, so outside of Israel. And it says, the uh, one of the lines said, or the beginning line said, Warnings from the book of Balaam, the son of Beor, he was a seer of the gods. So here is this text that is purporting to be writings from this guy, Balaam, who is a prophet. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, he wasn't an, an Israeli prophet. Right. Uh, so, that, so just really, really interesting that, you know, this seemingly fantastical story finds uh, credibility uh, from archaeology. So we, we really can see that the Bible is accurate in its descriptions of, of what happened in the past. Right. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rosho Christie. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about the accuracy of the biblical record and some of the archaeology that supports the claims of the Bible, the claims of the historical events described in the Bible. And uh, I guess that brings us to some comments about the archaeology of a specific city, uh, in Canaan, that was conquered by Joshua and the Israelites, and that's the city of Megiddo. Now, if you look at the archaeology historically, down through time, it all matches what the Bible describes about this specific city. So archaeologically, we know that by 2200 B.C., there was a large village there, and it was surrounded by a great wall. There was a 26 foot diameter circle altar that was five feet high with stairs. So uh, a small, uh, uh, a large village, a big wall around it, and a huge altar. Mm -hmm. Now, this is uh, 2200 BC, so this is the time of the patriarchs, but it's interesting, I think, that we notice that the altar was a circle, and some archaeologists have pointed out the fact that during the Exodus, Moses is commanded to make sure that he never builds a circular altar. It has to be a square altar. Hmm. Uh, and the altar uh, cannot have stairs up to it. 
So and that's actually specifically mentioned. So and of course it looks like it's because the enemies are the ones who have circular altars with stairs. So you know this is the don't be like the Canaanites. Right. Uh, even down to the details of you know your altars are not to look like uh, the Canaanites. Huh. And then archaeologically we know that Canaan was uh, very fertile right before the Exodus. Um, you know, the Bible describes it as the land of milk and honey. And archaeologically, we know that this was true. We have evidence from Tutmosis III. Remember, that was the father of Hatshepsut, uh, who pulled Moses out of the Nile River. Uh, Tutmosis III conquered Megiddo in the year 1469 B.C., and the description of what he captured there was 1,929 cows, 2,000 goats, 20,500 sheep, and 450,000 bushels of wheat. <laughs> so, uh, so just a, an amazing amount of food and livestock that they had there. So it really was a very fertile area, just as the, the Bible describes. And then at the destruction layer that archaeologists have found, they found a lot of uh, gold, silver, and ivory in used in decorations and, and jewelry. So it just shows that that area was a, a rich area, and it matches what the Bible describes. Wow. All right, so we're continuing on with uh, how the archaeology of Megiddo matches the Bible. And we have information from a, an archaeological discovery uh, called the Armana Tablets, and those were found in Egypt in 1887, and these were written down during the time of the conquest and uh, during the time of the judges. Right. So the interesting thing is that they describe the conquest and the political uh, relationships between different cities in Canaan and Egypt with the uh, what they called, remember that, uh, hobby rule. Right. And those relationships between those different cities are just as it was described in the book of Judges. Huh. Uh, another interesting thing is later on at Megiddo, digs there at Megiddo, and also in the city of Hazor and in the city of Gizo, uh, Gezer, found identical uh, city gates. Now, these were... <laughs> complex city gates, and they were, they were gates that, that I got the opportunity to see when I visited Israel, got to see the gates at Megiddo, and these were identical to uh, the, between the three cities. Now, it happens that biblically, in 1 Kings chapter 9, it talks about Solomon, King Solomon, uh, using these three cities uh, as military cities for his uh, chariots. And those three gates uh, looks like they were built by Solomon. So they're complex gates, they're very elaborate, uh, used for defensive purposes. So they had to have been built by a large, what would you call it, uh, basically an empire right. uh, at the time to get all three cities to have exactly the same architecture of their gates. So right. now it wasn't these are, just these are... separate city-states. These are all pretty ancient cities, right? These three places? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And Megiddo, we talked about, uh, goes back to uh, 2200 So uh, is, that, 
Is that where we get the expression "old geezer" from? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's. I think you're right. Just a little joke there, folks. We'll have to Very write little joke. One of the uh, archaeologists we've talked to in the past and, <laughs> and see uh, see if that's where that comes from. Yeah. So this city um, was destroyed by Pharaoh Shishak in 925 BC, and that was described in First Kings chapter 14 and First Chronicles chapter 12. Don't you just love these names? It's like, oh, where yeah. do they come up with some of these? You know, can you imagine, you know, having a son or a daughter or something and... Named Shishak? Yeah, just say, let's name him Shishak. Right. <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> yep. Well, I guess in those days it didn't sound strange. They would go, they would say, why would you name somebody Bob? <laughs> yeah, I guess Bob, so. Bob, that sounds weird. Right. So, of course, today Bob sounds weird, too, but... <laughs> Uh, and then uh, it was finally destroyed uh, again by the Assyrians in the 8th century B.C., and that is accurately described in Second Kings uh, chapter 15. So the city of Megiddo is a terrific testimony to the accuracy of Scripture. The Old Testament descriptions of that city match it at every level, whether the during the patriarchal period or during the Exodus period, or the Judges, or the later Kingdom period, all accurately describe the city, uh, and we can dig up and find the proof uh, just in that one city. Isn't that amazing how uh, the more archaeological finds that we come up with, the more things like this that we keep finding that match exactly what the Bible says and confirm its, its, uh, its accounts of these things? Yeah, yeah, it's true. They're really, and when you hear on the other side, the critics say that there's just no evidence for an exodus and, uh, you know, no evidence to support the Bible. It just really isn't true, you know. Well, you know, sometimes I think they expect to find, you know, a gigantic wall or something with a big drawing on it that says, this is the exodus, dummy, or, you know, something like that. And it's like, if they don't find something really specific like that, it's like, oh, well, you know, we don't have any proof of that. But you have all this uh, circumstantial evidence. There's so much of it that all fits together. It's like, you know, it really doesn't make much sense to say, oh, there, there's no evidence whatsoever for this, when there there really is. Right. You know, the atheist is going to say, well, uh, there's this thing called confirmation bias, and uh, and I, I happen to be reading a, a, uh, a study on confirmation bias, and maybe I'll be able to work it up a little bit into uh, something for the show later. But they'll say, well, you know, you're looking for evidence to prove that your story is true, and so when you find these things that seem to sort of match a little bit, then you say, yeah, they completely match, and, you know, you kind of blow things out of proportion. But don't people that believe in evolution really do the same thing? Of course, yes, of course. They, you know, uh, everybody does this a little bit, so we have to be careful with what we do, and we have to think critically. And fortunately, the nice thing is, is that we've got archaeologists who are doing a lot of critical thinking for us, and they're presenting this evidence, and then we just see that it does match what the Bible says. So, you know, we shouldn't ignore the evidence, we just have to be a little bit careful, but really, we're looking at the whole picture and what is the best explanation for all of the evidence, not just 
um, you know, maybe one or two of these pieces of evidence, like, like say, the uh, fall of Jericho. Okay, well, a critic could look and say, well, there are other places where uh, Jericho was attacked and destroyed, and so how do you know that it wasn't at this other time? Well, and so the answer is that, yeah, okay, maybe one small piece of evidence isn't enough to put the whole puzzle piece together, but when you put all of the evidence together, uh, even the evidence that seems to be contradictory at first, you will find out that uh, the whole picture matches the picture that's being described in the Bible. Right. Yeah, and I, I just read somewhere recently that, that said that it's really not, the issue really isn't, you know, do you have a bias or not? Everyone has a bias. There, you know, you're all, everyone's looking to confirm something that they kind of already believe in. It's just a question of, do you have enough evidence to support your particular bias or not? Right. And have you considered all of the evidence? Right. So, and so I think, you know, we would say that what you need to do, and uh, you and I both went through this process of examining alternative explanations and alternative worldviews, and uh, just found that the weight of the evidence goes with Christianity and the biblical record. Right. And there have been a number of... Uh pretty smart guys throughout history, like C.S. Lewis and others, that started out as atheists, and they studied this stuff, and they came out the other end, and they were like, you know, this stuff makes sense. Yep. And C.S. Lewis said that he was one of the most reluctant converts in history. He really (laughs) didn't want to believe this, but he honestly examined the evidence, and after a while he was just like, you know, I can't deny this stuff any longer. It just fits together too well. Right. And I, I really ended up doing the same thing when I was in my 20s, and I started investigating this stuff. I didn't really, you know, have any particular—I uh, wasn't brought up in a religious household or anything, and I didn't have any particular reason to want to believe the Bible or anything. But, you know, after examining uh, the Bible and, you know, some of the other, you know, so-called uh, holy writings or religious writings or whatever, I just found myself at a particular point like the Bible— seems to fit together a lot better than all the other ones do, and that's the one I ended up going with. Right. And then you, one of the neat things is when you discover evidence that just kind of appears from the internal evidence, the the basically different descriptions in in the Bible uh, written by different people at different times that all mesh together, once you get that meshing, that explanation that fits the big picture then you see, aha, this really is true. Uh, I'll give you an example. The Bible talks about something called the sabbatical calendar, okay? Now, this was a law of Moses that established uh, a sabbatical year to leave the, the field fallow. So what that means is that every seven years they would leave the field fallow. Right. And then I there was a that. jubilee year to cancel the deaths. And in fact, that's this term, uh, sabbatical, that, that uh, professors take a sabbatical that's from this. Right. And, uh, and then they would release all their uh, slaves, or, or what were really bond servants, uh, and then they would also read the law publicly. Now, this was established early on. So each of these activities that were described had their, their proper time, and they're mentioned throughout the whole Old Testament. From then on, 
there are mentions in Chronicles and First Second Kings and, and other books in the, the prophets mention about these different uh, jubilee years and Sabbath years. Right. Okay? So that a complete calendar of jubilee and sabbatical years can actually be constructed and the fascinating thing is that they match all of these different accounts from hundreds and hundreds of years later. Now, just think about this. Uh, just think about the evidence that this is for the accuracy of the, uh, of the New Testament. Remember, the critics say that the Bible was written, or at least edited, uh, much later, and, and it was largely uh, essentially made up, perhaps from some earlier oral tradition, but essentially made up um, pri- just prior to and after the Babylonian captivity. So talking about um, 800 to 500 B.C. Right. Well, no late-date editor could have invented all these different activities to show that they came from this earlier rule that was laid down from, from Moses. You know, right? Uh, this, that kind of a late-date editor could never have assigned the right dates exactly in those stories where they should fit due to the complexity of the dating methods of biblical historians. Because remember, for one thing, the uh, nation was split in two, there were, and there were two separate history books kept. So yet, if you realize that the Exodus happened in, in 1406 B.C., the year that Israel entered Canaan, and you work back from there, the, this revolving uh, seven-year periods, and then the 49th year would be the Jubilee year, it all works out exactly as described wow. uh, in the Bible. And what are the odds of that if it was just coincidental? Oh, yeah, it, it couldn't be. You, I mean, you just could never guarantee that the, uh, you know, it's difficult enough to figure it out if you were just reading the text. Um, so, but to think that somebody could have uh, calculated this all out and put in the appropriate references at the right spots in different texts written uh, by different authors just doesn't make any sense. Right. I don't think a lot of people think about the fact, too, that the Bible isn't really one book. It's a collection of a bunch of different books written by different people in different times and different places and, you know, people that didn't have any opportunity to uh, collude with each other about this stuff. Right. And yet there's this and yet it all fits together. Coherency, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we've got time for one last archaeological evidence for the Old Testament, and that is uh, something that's called the Babylonian Chronicles. Um, now, this was actually even admitted, the truth of this was admitted in by one of the atheists on our Facebook page, the fact that uh, uh, the attacks of Nebuchadnezzar uh, described in the Bible are actually confirmed by the Babylonian Chronicles. So what this is, it's a series of cuneiform tablets that cover the events between the 8th and 3rd centuries B.C. Uh, It covers the invasion by King Nebuchadnezzar II of Jerusalem, and it exactly matches the description described in 2 Kings 23. Right. Um, There's this interesting passage in 2 Kings in chapter 24, verses 10 through 20, where it says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar took King Jehoiakim captive, so this would have been at 597 B.C. Well, 
skeptics didn't believe this. I mean, this was seemed unheard of. Uh, why would Nebuchadnezzar take Jehoiakim as a captive? Why wouldn't he just kill him? So they really didn't believe this. They, they thought that the Second Kings, uh, chapter 24, was just made up. Well, lo and behold, in these Babylonian chronicles, we have Babylonian ration records from the year 595 B.C. that document the food rations given to Jehoiakim and his family while they were in captivity. So his name is plainly written right in the Babylonian records themselves. <laughs> wow. So, uh, you know, it, it's just astounding that time after time and discovery after discovery of the archaeologists just really supports that the Bible is really talking about real events that actually happened. Right. Well, I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And you have been listening to Evidence for Faith. We are a ministry of Ratio Christi, the campus ministry that puts apologists into colleges, uh, the college near you. And if you'd like to comment, you can send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number for faith.com. We hope that you'll join us again next week so we can give you some more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. That was fun!